Today I'm beginning a series on methodological considerations and undesigned coincidences. It's going to include some repeated material. There's probably no way around that, um, but hopefully there will be enough here that's new that it will be of interest to those of you who've been following my work for a long time. And if you have objections to undesigned coincidences, maybe if you haven't run across my relevant material that answers them, Elsewhere, maybe you'll find them in this playlist. So that's kind of the hope, that if I keep saying some of the same things in different places, it'll eventually uh, get out to where it needs to be. So today I'm going to be talking briefly about the question, can you refute undesigned coincidences? And the answer is yes and no, and that it depends on what you mean by refuting undesigned coincidences. And then I'm going to give a real-life example of an undesigned coincidence, which will hopefully illustrate uh, the sense in which there just are evidentially significantly relevant undesigned coincidences, you know, in the world, in the universe in general. So. If by refuting undesigned coincidences, you mean uh, deciding that a particular one that was thought to be forceful turns out not to be. Maybe we gain some additional information or something. Sure, that could happen in a given case. Um, if you mean contesting the argument that a given document or source or person is reliable in the information that they give us. Of course, you can challenge that. You may never have enough reason to uh, change your mind on it, okay? But if I use undesigned coincidences to defend the historical reliability of the Gospels, of course, there are going to be people who are going to have doubts about that, and we're going to argue back and forth about whether the Gospels really are reliable, okay? And what exactly has been uh, defended by undesigned coincidences. And of course, it's only one kind of argument. There are external confirmations, there are other internal arguments, and so forth. So, you know, any given alleged coincidence is one part of a larger set of coincidences, which is one part of a larger case with other types of arguments. So if all you mean by refuting the argument from undesigned coincidences is um, refuting the argument for the reliability of the Gospels, go ahead and try. Have at it. Uh, I don't think you're going to manage it. I don't think you're going to do it. I'm thoroughly convinced. But of course, are the Gospels reliable is not an a priori question. It's something that we have to settle on the basis of the evidence. But sometimes a phrase like uh, refuting undesigned coincidences is used in a very loose way. And there's an ambiguity between the person's meaning it just to refer to the argument for the Gospels or for Acts or something like that. Um, and his using that phrase about refuting it to mean showing that this, there is no such thing as an argument from undesigned coincidences at all, anywhere. Not even in secular uh, history, not even in philosophy of science, not even in um, 
other documents, things having nothing to do with religion at all, daily life, researching the news, talking to your buddy, you know, and that it's this, this blanket thing. Now, that's rarely made explicit, but the dismissiveness with which the phrase is used sometimes could give that impression. And the impression is undesigned coincidences. That whole concept is some Christian-y thing. It's some uh, apologist thing. It's some 19th century apologetics thing that nobody believes in, nobody uses, and we're just going to refute that whole thing. It's, it's got no, there is no such thing as a, a forceful argument based on an undesigned coincidence. Now, if you come to me and you say, what would it take to convince you that undesigned coincidences have been refuted? I'm going to ask you what level you mean that at. Because if you mean it at that most general level, I'm going to say, sorry, there's nothing that you're going to be able to bring me that's going to convince me that there literally are no such things as evidentially significant undesigned coincidences anywhere. Okay, that this is just some illusion made up by the apologetics community. Why do I say that? Well, because I can give hypothetical examples, I can give real examples outside of the Gospels, and I can give a probabilistic analysis of those examples that shows that under the circumstances that obtain in those examples, the, the empirical background evidence that we have, they do have evidential force for some historical proposition. Sorry. Okay. And it's also clear that if you have a source and you get a track record, you get evidential force for the truth and against the falsehood of the uh, historical propositions within that source, be it a document or a person or whatever, that's got to be positively epistemically relevant as a track record argument to the reliability of that source. So sure, you know, it's going to be built up of multiple instances, but you can just see schematically that it is the kind of thing that can be evidentially forceful. In illustrating this, I'll often use hypothetical cases. And if you watch my stuff, you know, one of my favorites is a hypothetical case of two people who both claim to have witnessed a bank robbery. One of them says, uh, I saw him trip when he ran away, referring to the robber. The other person says, and I looked down and noticed that his shoe was untied. And the person who says he saw him trip doesn't mention that the shoe was untied. And the person who mentions that the shoe was untied doesn't mention that he saw him trip. And this is clearly evidentially relevant to the statement that they both really witnessed a real historical event uh, in which they were looking at the same person and, and so forth, you know, just what they claim to be doing. And the, the casualness of it, the fact that each mentions only one part of it is relevant to dependence and independence, something we're going to be talking about extensively in this series, both from the perspective of common sense and from the perspective of probability, you can see that the investigator ought to consider that fitting together there as at least some positive evidence that these two witnesses are telling the truth about the alleged bank robbery. Okay, so I think that kind of a modeling shows us that um, 
you're never going to completely just dismiss undesigned coincidences entirely. For the rest of this talk, I'm going to give an argument from a real case, okay? So I've done a hypothetical case. Now I'm going to do a real case. Once again, what I'm trying to show is that I don't have to give you circumstances under which I would decide that globally there are no such things as undesigned coincidences because that's something I can tell just from sitting in my armchair, okay, um, that I, I can either construct cases or I can consider cases that are presented to me. Uh, if this is your evidence, is that positively relevant to this conclusion over here? And I can see that it is, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that it's true a priori that the Gospels themselves are reliable, or it's true a priori that there's a strong argument from undesigned coincidences that the Gospels and Acts are reliable. I'm not claiming that, so I don't want to be misrepresented here. But it can be seen from the armchair that there is a type of evidence that can be described by this name undesigned coincidences that you could have, and that that type of evidence would present some significant force in favor of the story being told. All right, on to the real life situation. I was uh, told about this, alerted to this by my daughter, Bethel McGrew. So hat tip to Bethel, because uh, I had never heard the story. She's very interested in uh, actors of the, the silver screen, you know, movie actors, uh, in, especially from the 20th century. This concerns uh, a British actor named Dirk Bogard. You can look him up. I will include a link to um, the relevant material in the video description. Bogard was in the British Army during um, World War II, okay? And later, it was actually some decades later, he would give interviews about Bergen-Belsen, one of the, the horrible Nazi Holocaust camps, concentration camps. And he would claim to have been at Bergen-Belsen in the early days after it was liberated by the British Army. And Bogart would, would talk about how horrible this was, and he would give a detailed account. And um, he even said that it convinced him that, you know, there was no God. I mean, you know, it, it just really wrenched him. Bogart is, is dead now, and his um, biographer is a man named Coldstream. Now, I want to give credit to Mr. Coldstream because he has corrected himself on this. But Coldstream said that when he was first researching Bogart's life, he questioned whether Bogart had ever, ever been to Bergen-Belsen. He thought it might have been a case of false memory syndrome, okay? That Bogart had just heard about Bergen-Belsen and it like produced this fake memory in his own mind. Um, again, I, I give credit to Coldstream for admitting that he was wrong about this later on. I think perhaps he doesn't realize just how poor his reasons were originally for questioning Bogart, and I think he may still be too cautious about accepting Bogart's accounts of visiting Bergen-Belsen, but at least, you know, he brought forward this other evidence, and that's 
that's a sign of honesty. I want to give that credit. Coldstream's original reasons were wonderful examples that I just have to talk about a little bit here um, of a priori history and argument from silence. So the a priori history aspect of it was that he was saying uh, there was typhus in the, the liberated camp and, you know, Bogart didn't have to be there. Surely it would have been put out of bounds. They wouldn't have allowed you to just kind of go over there. And Bogart doesn't claim that he had any special reason to go. He just went over there with some of his friends to, to see it because he'd heard about it. Um, in fact, he even says that he was hoping to get a pair of German boots that might have been abandoned at the camp. And that was part of the reason, kind of a frivolous reason for going over there. So Coldstream was kind of saying, surely they wouldn't have just let anybody wander over there, you know. Um, kind of similar to what scholars do when they say, surely the Jerusalem leaders wouldn't have let Jesus go to uh, the, the temple again, enter the temple again uh, on a later Passover when he, if he had cleansed the temple on an earlier Passover as an argument against two temple cleansings. Um, so, and then the second argument he used was an argument from silence because we have a postcard, I believe it is, that he wrote to a family member back in England where he said, we're getting some lovely weather and I'm even getting some sunbathing in. And it was right around the time when Bogart claimed that he had visited Bergen-Belsen. And so Coldstream reasoned, why would he write this cheerful sounding postcard and not mention, you know, I saw this and this showed why the war was justified. Now, this is really tin-eared because this would be a very traumatizing experience. And in fact, Bogart didn't speak of it for some time afterwards. And it's a postcard. Can you, can you imagine, you know, you're writing to your sister back home in England, have just visited Nazi death camp, heaps of unburied corpses, People starving and traumatized. Hope you are well. Love, Derek. And then you get to send that postcard. No, I mean, it's just really poor, poor argument. All right. Um, but what finally actually convinced Coldstream that he was wrong was not reflecting on the weakness of his original reasons, but rather was a separate testimony that came out between, I think it says 2007-2009, from a man named Andre Coden. Coden was an Austrian, um, and Coden had was working, you know, working with the British, and they had brought him to Bergen-Belsen after they liberated it to um, to act as a translator. Okay, and to talk to the, the people who were still alive, who were there. And Coden remembers being there at Bergen-Belsen and seeing a Jeep with some British men in it. And, and they get out and they stand around for a while. And one of them was just looking and his friends were calling and you know, come on. And it was some name that began with a D, you know, Dirk or Derek or something like that. Haven't you seen enough? And Coden saw him turn around and saw his face and it was just so sad. And his eyes were so sad. 
and then he left with his friends. Fast forward, so that's in 1945. This is April 1945. By the way, uh, Bogart often said he wasn't sure of the date. I believe the camp was liberated on April 15th. Bogart wasn't sure if he went over there on the 17th or the 18th. Coden was quite sure that the day he was there and saw this officer was the 20th of April, 1945, and he remembers it because it was Hitler's birthday. And so that stuck in his mind. Fast forward 10 years, Coden's in a movie theater. So it's about 1955. And uh, he's watching a movie with his wife, who's Greek. And this actor comes on the movie. It's Dirk Bogart. And Coden says, that's him. So he tells his wife the story after the movie. And he says, that person, you know, that I saw at the camp, that, that British man is... It's that actor. And his wife says, you're dreaming. Now, notice that at this point, Coden did not even know that Bogart had ever claimed to have been there. Okay, and in fact, Bogart may, never, may not, at, in 1955, have yet made any public statement that he had been there. It was later that he gave these interviews, I believe. So Coden's just telling his wife this, and she's dismissing him. Okay, and then later... I think it was about 30 years later. Coden's reading the Telegraph and a, an article by Bogart, and I think it had his picture there, where he tells about visiting Belson. And he says, that's him again. And he shows it to his wife. You told me I was crazy. And see, it really was him. Okay. So, I mean, at this point, Coldstream is completely convinced. Once he heard that uh, oral, oral testimony, oral history from Coden in the OOs in 2007 to 2009, he's completely capitulated, yes, Dirk Bogard was at Bergen-Belsen, I mean, at least was there. Another piece of evidence that has come in in the meantime that, again, Coldstream tells on himself, is evidence from some of the command uh, centers or whatever they were about how the camp, Bergen-Belsen, was handled shortly after the liberation. And that it said visitors kind of descended on the camp. Presumably they would be, you know, military personnel, but that immediately it was not put in a no-go zone. That it took them a little while to say, okay, they, this, this has got to stop. You know, you can't just have people wandering over here. So during that envelope of time, just as Bogart said, he could have just gone over there. So that also refutes uh, one of Coldstream's a priori history reasons, and should, it should make us all uh, careful about a priori history. Okay, now, how is this an undesigned coincidence? Well, let the proposition in question be Dirk Bogart visited the newly liberated Bergen-Belsen Holocaust camp sometime in April of 1945, okay? And he, you know, saw horrible things there. All right, let that be the proposition. We have Bogart's explicit testimony to that effect, which Coldstream questioned. And then we have Coden's testimony 
that he saw someone there whom he recognized much later on the screen as Bogart, okay, that he saw him there around the very time that, that Bogart said he was there. And yet this appears to be undesigned because um, Coden did not even know that Bogart claimed to have been there at the time that he first told this to his wife. In fact, she dismissed it because all there was to go on was Coden's claim to recognize Bogart in the movie, okay? Um, so it appears to be quite independent. It's not that Coden had read Bogart's account and then was saying, oh yeah, I think I saw him, or so, you know, influenced in his own memories by Bogart's account, nor do we have any, um, nor do we have any other source that they were both borrowing for other than reality, that they would both have been getting their facts from, were they each copying some part of it. Their own memory claims are, are going back allegedly to the facts, to, to that day and that time period in that newly liberated camp, okay? Um, so there's that. There's external evidence of independence. There's also internal evidence of independence. Bogart doesn't tell, as far as I know, in his accounts of standing there looking at the piles of bodies and the horror and his friends calling him, come on, let's go, haven't you seen enough? That's only in, in Coden. Um, and there's a lot more to Bogart's testimony, like of meeting, tells about meeting a woman who was starving to death and she wanted to see a newspaper and so forth. And none of that is found in Coda. And Coda doesn't claim to have witnessed that. So there's variation in the accounts. In fact, one could even argue that um, it's a little unclear where the Jeep was coming from in Coden's account and whether Coden is implying that those men were there for only a very short time. Um, so there's even some possibility of contradiction because Bogart tells of a, a longer time that they spent there were, I, I'm not saying, you know, hours and hours, but that they went around the camp and they had that conversation with that woman and so forth. Whereas you know, you might think from Coden's testimony, you know, they drove up in their Jeep from completely far away, somewhere not in the camp. They get out of their Jeep, they stand there for, you know, what, maybe 10 minutes. And then they say, what are you waiting for? Haven't you seen enough? And they get back in their Jeep and they drive away, um, which would contradict Bogart's testimony. I think they can be plausibly harmonized given what I know now. But the point is there's internal evidence of independence as well but they both agree that Bogard was there at Bergen-Belsen in April of 1945. Now, I think there's just something wrong with your evaluation. If you're going to say that those two testimonies put together as a conjunction do not significantly support that proposition, I think you should just be able to see that they do. So that is an example that tells you why I'm never going to agree that you could just totally refute the argument from undesigned coincidences end to toe, to, to just remove it and say there is no such argument, there are no such cases that have any historical force or any worth speaking of at all. 
this instance, I think, has quite significant historical force for the proposition that Bogart did visit Bergen-Belsen. Okay, now, no doubt, any skeptics who are watching this are going to go away and say, well, that wasn't what I meant anyway. Well, okay, then be a little less dismissive in the way you talk about it. Be a little um, more focused in what you're claiming and in what you're asking us to uh, to do. If you're asking someone who's using that argument for the Gospels to state conditions under which he would abandon the argument from undesigned coincidences, you know, in what sense do you mean abandon it, abandon it only for the Gospels or what? Okay, that's my first presentation. And next time, we're going to start talking about independence and dependence and what those mean in the context of undesigned coincidences and why that's important. So I hope you'll come back next time to the Lydia Mugger channel. We're making common sense rigorous.